Okay, welcome back, everybody. So nice to see familiar faces. Back for another Tuesday night series, Ezra Hashem. Very excited about this. The Hashkafa project is something that many of us uh, have been talking about for a while. So many topics come up that we classify as Hashkafic topics, but to really take a step back and analyze what does Hashkafa mean? Why is it so essential? And then go through many of these uh, topics that, that could use some insight, that could use some clarity from the, uh, the Torah perspective. A special thank you this evening to Mr. and Mrs. Ellie and Jenny Abraham from Detroit, sponsoring tonight's year. So thank you very much to them. Let's start off with a game. What does the word hashkafa mean? If you had to translate hashkafa, what would you say? Outlook, that's good. Philosophy. philosophy, okay. Outlook, philosophy. Mishkafayim is glasses, right? That's, that's insightful, all right. That was a Rebbe joke, I'm sorry. That's a <laughs> so, Generally, the word hashkafa is translated as philosophy, outlook, our approach or opinion on, uh, on a given subject. What I'd like to do, though, briefly is let's journey together through six different places in Tanakh where we find the word or the basic shorish of hashkafa used. We'll look at each one individually, and then we'll try to find the theory of everything based on how the word is utilized in Tanakh. Sounds like fun? Okay. So the first two, we have the word in conjunction with describing Hashem looking down. Hashkifa mimon We ask Hashem to look down from your holy abode from heaven. Uvarich is amcha Yisrael and to bless your nation, Klal Yisrael. Hashkifa mimon kodshecha, look or gaze down from your holy abode, mina shemayim. That's source number one. Source number two. By Hibash Moras Haboker, it wasn't the turning of the morning. Veyashkev Hashem el Machane Mitzrayim, that Hashem looked down at the Egyptian army. So another usage of Hashkafa regarding Hashem. Hashem is looking down at the Egyptian army. Source number three. Vahiki It was after many days. Veyashkof Avimelech Melech Plishtim Ba'ad Chalon. Avimelech, the king of the Plishtim, he looked out of his window and he saw Yitzchak Mitzachek as Rivka Ishto. Yitzchak acting uh, like, a, like a husband to Rivka. And he was under the impression they were brother and sister, so that was a surprise to him to see. But this is another example of looking. This is not regarding Hashem, but rather, this is Avimelech looking from the window. When the angels come to Avraham, we'll learn about it in next week's Parsha. After having their conversation, the Torah tells us that the men, meaning the angels, got up from there 
and yashkifu al stone, they looked down at the city of stone. Okay, so looking from a distance is definitely classified or defined as hashkafa. Two last sources we find in the Nevi'im, one is in, in Shoftim, in Sefer Shoftim. This is during the war with uh, Sisera, who was the general of the enemy army against Kalal Yisrael. And we know that Yael, in her, in her uh, brave, heroic pursuit to save Kalal Yisrael, she ends up killing Sisera. And the Pasuk says, Ba'ad chalo nishkafa vatyabeb aim Sisera, from the window, the mother of Sisera was looking down and she was crying. Where's my sweetheart? Where's my little Sisera? We're waiting for you. So again, hashkafa ad from the window. And last but not least, we have when David HaMelech comes back, bringing the, uh, the Holy Ark back from the, the Plishtim. Pasuk in Shmuel says that they came to Ir David, the city of David, and there was this joyous occasion, and David HaMelech was dancing and leaping and skipping. Michal Bashol, Michal, the daughter of Shol, Nishkafa Ba'adachalon. She looked down from the window. She saw the way that her husband was behaving, and uh, she was displeased. She felt it was, it was overboard, it was disrespectful for his stature. So those are six different places we have the basic word hashkafa used in Tanakh. Can somebody give me the theory of everything based on these six sources? What's a good working definition, a user-friendly definition of hashkafa? I actually, I brought this up with the, I give a weekly class in the Beis Yaakov, Torah Chaim, and I brought up the question with the girls, where does hashkafa come up in life? And the response was, when you're like looking into dating somebody, you'll ask a question, right? What, what is your hashkafa regarding? You know, would you have a TV in the house? Do you listen to secular music, right? That's how hashkafa comes up in life. But based on these psukim, what is hashkafa? Looking down. Looking down. You might call it a bird's eye view. Rashi actually in Shira Shirim, when that term is used in Shir Hashirim, Rashi says, Hashkafa is mimakom gavoa lenomach. When you're looking from a higher place to a lower place, that is termed Hashkafa or Hashkifa. You're gazing. If you walk through a door, we have a mitzvah of mezuzah. When is there actually a mitzvah of having a mezuzah on the doorpost? Only if you have a doorpost on each side. And what's that thing coming down? What do you call that in Hebrew? A mashkof. In Parshas Bo, where the Jews were instructed to place the blood of the carbon Pesach on the mashkof, so the Rashbam, the grandson of Rashi, explains, miftan ha'elyon, that's the top part of the door. Why is it called mashkof, the same shoresh as hashkafa? Because clearly there's something about being higher and somehow having a broader or expanded perspective. So I think one, one idea, one concept 
we could clearly take away from the usage of hashkafa throughout Tanakh is that it's a bird's eye view. It's not being so trapped within the forest that all you think there is is one little tree or the bark of that tree to the point where you forget you're in the forest. Hashkafa is a bird's eye view. What's also interesting, if you analyze all of those different places the word comes up, is there's always an emotional connection to what you're looking at. Rashi actually tells us that hashkafa all throughout Tanakh usually has a connotation of looking at something with a critical eye or somewhat negatively, with one exception. The one exception was the first Pusuk we saw together. When we dab into Hashem, Hashkifa look down at us and bless us. But every other example where the word Hashkafa is used, surprisingly, has a negative connotation. If it's the angels looking down at stone, about to destroy the city, if it's Abimelech looking out the window and being surprised and disappointed that Yitzchak was actually married to Rivka, they weren't siblings, if it's the case of Sisera looking out and crying for her son, right, the, the mother of Sisera, if it's Michal, the daughter of Shoal, looking out the window and feeling that her husband was acting in a way that was beneath his dignity. But what's clear is that every time we find Hashkafa, not only is it a broader or bird's eye view, there's an emotional reaction or response that goes along with that view. So would it be fair to say Hashkafa is a philosophy or an opinion on a given subject or topic? I think that would be selling the concept of Hashkafa short. Hashkafa is not a philosophy or an opinion on a particular issue. Hashkafa is one's perception of reality. It's the lenses, the mishkafayim, that we view the world, we view ourselves, we view Hashem. It's the lenses in which we view life from. See, philosophy also connotes an outside-in method of conjecture, of speculation, where you're trying to make something up, you're creating a theory. Hashkafa is, I'm just trying to see what's actually there, to have an expanded vision of life, a deeper awareness of reality, Hashkafa is more seeing the wholeness of truth. It's understanding life within the context of Torah and Torah within the context of life. So Hashkafa is much more than does he listen to Goyish music, right? It's a much broader, uh, more powerful issue that has an impact on everything we do. Philosophy, that word usually means, it's an interesting discussion, it could be a debate. Hashkafa is, this is the way I view myself, my life, my role, my mission as a mother, as a father, as a husband, as a wife. This is what I'm doing here on planet Earth. And therefore, everything that I see and I feel is based on my hashkafa. There's a famous story that Stephen Covey relates where he says he was one time on a train and uh, he saw this father walk onto the train with his two children 
It looked like he didn't even realize they were there with him. He sits down and he closes his eyes. And the kids were running around, they were making noise, they were disturbing people. So Stephen Covey says, I was trying to hold myself back, but I was getting really irritated. So I said in a very patient uh, voice, excuse me, sir, is there something you could do to try to just keep your kids under control? And the man looked up from his stupor, almost as if it was the first time he realized they were running around and, and screaming. And he said, oh my gosh, I, we, just, we just got back from the hospital, we're on our way back home. And my wife, their mother, just passed away about an hour ago. I, I, I just don't know what to think. I, I guess they don't know what to do either. So Stephen Covey relates. He says, at that moment, there was such an incredible paradigm shift from viewing this guy as just out to lunch, irresponsible, neglectful of his children, and therefore feeling frustration and anger. How can you be so insensitive to everyone else in the train? And therefore the behavior that comes from all of that is, I need to do something about this and put you in your place. Within a split second, all of that anger is melted away. And I'm now viewing him with compassion, with a sense of, of just of, of hurt and pain. And I said, I, I feel so incredibly bad. I'm, I'm so sorry to hear that. See, the basic formula, take a look on top of page three. And this, uh, this formula applies to everything in life, but particularly Hashkafa, is what we see, or at least what we think we're seeing, creates the way we feel. And the way we feel will impact or influence the way we act. So in this particular case, you see an irresponsible father that makes you feel angry and frustrated and therefore you need to confront him. As soon as you see it differently, now that he's revealed some of the, uh, the broader picture, so I see a grieving husband and the feeling is not anger, the feeling is love and compassion, and that propels me not to confront him, but to support him. So hashkafa is the way we see reality, and therefore, the way we feel about everything we're doing, the way I feel about my marriage, the way I feel about my children, the way I feel about my tefillah, the way I feel about the creator of the universe is based on how I see all of this. How I see it will produce those emotions, and those emotions will influence my actions. So is hashkafa an important thing on a scale of one to 10? What would you assume? It's pretty important, at least an eight and a half, right? At least an eight and a half. So now the question's like this. Where do we get our hashkafa from? Right, so we all know the most reliable source is go online and Google something. And likely the first thing that comes up is the closest to the truth. Right, so where do we get hashkafa from? Now a lot of us, I would say all of us, we all have feelings or, or perceptions of life in Judaism based on our family, our culture, how we were brought up, 
how many hours of television we watched as children. There are many things that play a role in, in how we view the world, but ideally, where does our hashkafa come from? So I want to share with you just a few lines from a letter that was written by Rabbi Shamshin Rafael Hirsch. This is from his book, The 19 Letters. Letter 18 is action-packed, but just to focus on a few <coughs> transformative concepts here from Rav Shamshin Rafael Hirsch. This is on page 3, number 1. Rav Hirsch writes, There is no evil, no wrongful development in Judaism, which does not owe its origin to an improper or mistaken comprehension of the Torah. So any deviation, any, any roadblock that we find throughout history, says Rav Hirsch, you could trace it back to a misunderstanding of the real Torah hashkafa. And if you search for the cause of our modern illness, meaning what's holding us back nowadays, you will find it nowhere else than in this fatal misconception. So he delineates there are two major issues when it comes to trying to discover the Hashkafas HaTorah. Right? The phrase Hashkafas HaTorah is the view of, of the Torah. Or we might say Hashkafas HaChayim, our Hashkafa, our outlook on life. There are two potential issues or challenges that we might encounter on this journey. The first is, if we're not careful and we allow ourselves to take an outside-in approach, then we're not really listening closely to the music of the Torah, but we're taking our own ideas and our own concepts of what we feel is true or what is right, and we're basically inserting it into the Torah. When Rav Hirsch speaks about this concern, he says that throughout history, we've been faced with this problem where instead of taking one stand within Judaism, instead of comprehending each obligation in its totality according to Tanakh and Talmud, and then asking ourselves in an honest, holistic way, where is this coming from? What is the reason behind it through exploring the sources? What we end up doing is we set up our standards outside of Judaism, we create our own framework, and then we try to plug everything in, in a way that, that feels right and works for me. So concern number one is that as we try to understand the Hashkafas HaTorah, and we'll go through different topics of intrigue, and we'll go through different mitzvot together, and try to get a more wholesome, broader, expanded view on what we're doing and why we're doing it, we have to be careful that we're looking from the inside out, trying to derive from the Torah the perspective, not, not uh, superimposing our own perspective on the Torah. Now, this doesn't mean we can't be creative. If all throughout Jewish scholarship, the creativity and the brilliance and the almost the aggression of the mind is something that we, that we value. It's precious, it's sacred. But the creativity is in the realm of trying to discover and reveal and uncover the truth, not put our own ideas into it. That's one concern. The second concern, says Rav Shamshan Hirsch, is that if we don't pay attention to what we're doing, then it could easily devolve into mindless 
ritual. Isolated tasks that have no real connection to life and to the vitality of Torah. He says, we find that many, although observant, have inherited an uncomprehended Judaism as a mechanical habit. Mitzvos and Nashim Without its spirit, without the Ruach, they bear it in their hands as a sacred relic, a revered mummy, but fear to rouse its spirit. Which is a very poetic way of describing a particular uh, approach to Judaism, which is, I have respect and I have a, a reverence for halacha. And I want to do everything I need to be doing and stay away from all those things I shouldn't be doing. But there's no life. There's no ruach. And I might almost be afraid to awaken that feeling within me because it's so foreign to me. I feel so comfortable just incorporating my Judaism into my life. And I do my thing. I have my schedule. I have my davening. I have my learning. We have our Pesach Seder. And we, you know, we do everything we need to be doing. And culturally and, and religiously, I'm, I'm connected. But spiritually, I might be very far away from that, that wellspring of life and vitality. So we have two concerns as we approach this broad, very important topic of hashkafa. Concern number one is we want to make sure we're getting the hashkafa, we're deriving that hashkafa from authentic sources. And number two is we can't fall prey to the, uh, the automatic pilot way of doing mitzvos of just allowing ourselves to keep on moving and keep on doing without appreciating and awakening the spirit within. So what exactly is the approach? And this will be our guiding mantra throughout our entire project in Mirza Hashem. Says Rav Shem Hirsch, there is only one way to redemption, which is we have to forget the inherited pre prejudices and opinions concerning Judaism. Just because I may view something in a particular way doesn't mean I need to hold on to that opinion or that perception. I should push myself to, to reevaluate and reassess how am I actually viewing everything that I'm doing. How do we do that? We go back to the sources. We go back to Tanakh and to the Gemara and to the Midrashim. And we try to listen carefully to the music that's coming forth from these sources. And then ask ourselves the most basic questions, questions that come up in Kirub seminars, but perhaps they're even more important for people who've been doing this for many years, namely, what does it mean to be a Jew? What is my role? What is Judaism? What is the mission of Klal Yisrael as a whole? The seekers after knowledge will go back to the ancient fountains of Judaism. And that's exactly our mission in the Hashkafa project. A fresh look at ancient wisdom. By a show of hands, who here is a seeker of truth? Yeah, it depends, maybe, sometimes, if I'm in the mood. Seekers of truth when it comes to deriving Real hashkafa, we have to go back to the fountains of ancient wisdom. But that requires taking a fresh look at those sources. He concludes this letter by saying that the cause of truth counts not the number of its inheritance. It only, if only one remains, one Jew with the book of law in his hands, 
with Israel's law in his heart, Israel's light in his spirit, that one suffices. Israel's cause is not lost. So the idea of the cause of truth counts not the number of its inheritance means to actually pursue this honestly with a sense of, of vulnerability and openness and a desire to view things in perhaps a very different way, it might not be something that many of us are ready for. It's one thing to come to a shir once a week and hear a few nice ideas, and then uh, we go back to our life. But like we mentioned when we had the Torah Chaim project, the goal of this is not just to have a weekly shir. It's wonderful to get together and learn Torah, but it's a project. It's something that we're doing together, that we're trying to actually create this interactive culture of being able to revitalize our Yiddishkeit, to awaken that, that spirit and to approach different sources and reanalyze some of the most basic fundamental questions of Amunah and Bitacha. Ever heard the phrase Das Torah? Das Torah. I'm not sure what to do. I should ask Das Torah, which literally means this is the knowledge of Torah. Who do we go to when we're trying to ascertain what the Das Torah is? So we go to great rabbis and we try to inquire, what is the Das Torah? What does Hashem want me to do? Why do we have more confidence in great rabbis regarding Das Torah than we do in ourselves? Where does this whole process come from? That it's almost like an obsession. We need to go to great, wise, older people. What do they have that I don't yet have? So you might answer, they're so holy and there's so much sanctity and kedusha and they've been doing this for so many years, they're on a different level. And that's true. You might answer that they have siyata deshmaya, they have a special divine assistance in their role as being the, the manhigim, the, the leaders of Klal Yisrael. And that's true as well. But the most basic definition of Das Torah is knowledge that actually comes from the Torah. I'm asking you the question, obviously I respect you as a person and the incredible human being you've transformed yourself into, but I'm also asking you because you know what the Torah says on this subject. Trying to clarify and expand our hashkafa is really about asking, what does the Torah say on this issue? Right, some of the, the topics we'll get into, Mirza Shem, exploring that delicate balance between being meticulous and diligent in halacha but making sure it's coming from a healthy place and it's not, it's not coming from a source of, of being overly obsessive or compulsive. And if it is, what do I do about that? How do I address it? Are we too insular? Do we keep to ourselves too much? Should we be going out and, and sharing truth with the world? Should that be more of an agenda item? Right? There are so many massive topics that we'd like to get more clarity on, the way to do that is exploring and discovering the Das Torah, which means the actual knowledge that comes from the Torah itself.
Torah meaning the ancient wellsprings. Midrashim, Gemara, Tanakh, that's Das Torah. Now, sometimes when you do this, the answer we arrive at can be somewhat surprising. <coughs> right? There might be a, a dilemma that I have in my personal life or something we're, we're grappling with on a community level. And, and superficially, you know, from my armchair, I might assume one, uh, one basic approach or method in how to deal with it. The Das Torah might be very different than I assumed. I'll share with you an interesting example of this. This goes back many decades when there was a discussion relevant to the halachos of infertility. And Ramosha Feinstein was involved with very nuanced, very sensitive questions. And there was one particular area where he gave a psak. He, uh, he shared his ruling in something that was very controversial. And he got a lot of flack for it. There were many people in the Froom world who felt it was a breach of Taras Yisrael. It was almost a diminishing of the, the purity and the sanctity of the Jewish people to be able to even mention such an, such an option. So in response to some of the, uh, the pushback, Ramosha shared the following words. And when hearing this, we have to understand and remind ourselves who he was. Right? There, were, there was no uh, massive ego that he was trying to defend. He was just expressing his opinion in the most genuine way possible. Listen to what he says. This is on page five. There is nothing that I said, God forbid, that would cause any form of breach or diminishing of the sanctity of Kalal Yisrael. What I was telling you is based on the truth of the Torah that we derive from our Rishonim. And it's true, you spoke out harshly against me and you condemned my ruling. Let me share with you where your opinion's coming from. He says, It's Ba Mehashkofo Shaboy Miadios Deos Chetsonios. You think you're defending. Right, the sanctity of the Torah and the Kedusha of the Jewish people and the future of Klal Yisrael. Let me reveal something to you. You're actually coming from a point of view, from philosophies that are not based within Torah, but they're based outside of Torah. You might feel more of a righteous indignation and a frumkite in what you're promoting, but that's not coming from Torah. He says it's possible that even people with great chachma, who have experience in, in, in the Torah world, if we're not careful, we could allow different ideas and concepts and philosophies to infiltrate and to penetrate the way we see life. He concludes by saying, you should know, v'ani baruch Hashem. I say every day, thank you Hashem, she'eni lo mehem ve'lo I'm not coming from that world. 
V'chol hashkafosi hu rak miyadiyas ha-Torah. My hashkaf is coming from the knowledge of Torah. Blishum tarovus miyadiyas chetzonios. Without any confusion or distraction from the outside things that you guys have been exposed to. And even if you seem to be appearing more religious or more concerned for the sanctity of Kalal Yisrael, but a lot of the way you're viewing this issue is not based on Torah. It's based on this religious fervor that might have nothing to do with Torah. So sometimes when we take this, this uh, pursuit seriously and we follow the, vi- the advice of Shamshan Rafal Hirsch and Ramosha Feinstein, where Das Torah is, we're actually trying to uncover the knowledge that's within the Torah. And next week we'll get involved with some of those tools and, and the methodology for how we go about doing it practically. Sometimes the answer is surprising. But when we arrive there, there could be a sense of joy at just having a deeper clarity, having an awareness, having a recognition of something that was, was confusing or was perhaps distorted before I got to this point. That joy is something that's unparalleled. Over Shabbos, we... Uh, we spoke about Rabbi David Grumman, and an amazing Rebbe in Los Angeles for decades who had thousands of Talmidim, and he was someone who personally had a major impact on my life and really changed my, my whole course. My first time meeting Rabbi David Grumman, like we mentioned during the drasha, it was the summer before entering ninth grade, and my parents, although they were very supportive of, uh, of me exploring yeshiva high school, they were also hesitant. What does an orthodox high school look like? We don't want to lose our son, who is somewhat normal, right? And put him into a system that's going to be uh, like a cult. So the first exposure they had was when we met Rabbi David Grumman at the Kolo in Los Angeles. And I remember standing there, and my mother brought me, and we had a conversation for a little bit, and he was explaining what we would learn together and how he would prepare me for the beginning of ninth grade. I had that session. When my mother picked me up, she shared with me my whole perspective on what we were getting into changed drastically after just schmoozing with Rabbi Grumman for a few minutes. Because until now, it was just like this abyss, this unknown, we're sending our son to a yeshiva high school and you know, he might just disown us. But when I met Rabbi Grumman, and he definitely looked the part, <laughs> you know, he was a very, you know, he had the, the yeshivish appearance but just schmoozing with him for a few minutes, my mother said, that changed her whole perspective and that gave her more of a confidence and a feeling of, of strength going into this new stage of life where they were sending their son into a yeshiva. Right? So sometimes it doesn't take years and years of work and a malus. Sometimes just a few minutes of seeing something from a different perspective can change your whole paradigm. Now I'm seeing it differently. Now I'm feeling very different about it, and now I'll act in a very different way. I want to conclude by just mentioning something that I feel is, is vital. 
that hashkafa is not limited to intellectual explanations. Much of our spiritual existence and experience cannot be expressed in words. Hashkafa includes the ability to relate to and draw from the limitless wellspring of emotion we have within us. So it's not just I have a reason or an explanation or an argument as to why I view something the way I do, but even if I can't put it into words, part of developing a, a more wholesome hashkafa of life and Torah is how do I relate to this? What's my relationship with this, with this particular mitzvah or with this, with this custom? I might not explain it in, in logic, but I could still explain it in a way that emotionally is sound. And the most powerful mashal I've ever seen regarding this aspect of hashkafa is from the Eish Kodesh. The Eish Kodesh of Kolonimus Kalman Shapiro, Hashem Yokum Domov, he says that sometimes, and he's talking about a very high level of someone who's been working on themselves for many years. He says, sometimes we're margish bepoel ke'ev halev mi godel chukoso l'ashem. We almost feel this pain of the heart because we have such a yearning to come closer to Hashem. By a show of hands, how often does that happen to you? It's Hashem as you go through the Hashkafa project. It'll be more of a, a frequent experience. But sometimes you almost feel pain by how much longing you have for Hashem. But you don't even know why you feel this way. You just feel this internal fire, this oneg, this pleasure, and this yearning to come closer, but you can't express it into words. And he says, here's the picture of what I'm talking about. You have a, a child who's two and a half years old, three years old, that there's just something that turns on within him and he has this like love and excitement to run to his father. And he does so. He runs across the house, wide open arms, giving his, his tati a bear hug. I love you, tati. I love you, tati. There's such a feeling of this this unquenchable thirst to connect with his father in this moment, if you were to stop the child, right, in mid, midway down the hall as he's running towards his father and ask him, assuming he could speak eloquent sentences, excuse me, David, quick question, what are you doing right now? I'm running towards my tati. Why are you doing that? What's happening within you that's compelling you to give your father a hug right now? There wouldn't be any answers to those questions. The kid doesn't have those answers. Oftentimes, we ourselves may not have those answers. But says the Eish Kodesh, part of developing a wholesome hashkafa is how to relate and how to cultivate those emotions within us even though we might not be able to classify them in words themselves. So one major aspect of Hashkafa, and this is what we find from the actual usage of Hashkafa all throughout Tanakh. It's a perspective, it's a bird's eye view, it's an expanded vision of truth, seeing life 
within the wholeness of Torah and Torah within the wholeness of life. And from that vision, having a hargosha, having an emotion that could transform everything we do and every aspect of who we are. And that's what Ashkafa is. Because when I see things differently, I feel differently. We want to avoid during this process the outside-in method, and we're going to work inside-out, and we'll explain what that means in a practical level. We want to avoid the mindless ritual, which is obviously the main goal of this project. Ancient fountains of wisdom, discovering that Das Torah and developing a more meaningful and joyful connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I look forward to future classes together. Shkoyach.